Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interest represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 31. A conversation with the president of the Bay Area Climbers Coalition, Peter Monks. One housekeeping item I need to address before getting into the episode here today is making an official announcement about Access Fund's annual advocacy conference for 2021. So save the date for October 8th and 9th and plan to join again virtually this year. Registration will be open in July. I don't have an exact date for that yet, but keep your eyes peeled for the registration date for the annual conference this year. Another date I do have is for those of you who might be interested in presenting at the conference. Those applications are due by the end of the month on June 30th. I'll put a link to the application in the show notes, so check that out if you're interested in presenting at the conference this year. All right, on to Peter. He started as president of the BACC in January of this year, and while his time as president may be just getting started, his time at the BACC is not. Peter has been involved with the BACC for many years now, beginning in the stewardship world, and he has since worked his way up to now leading the organization. The BACC is truly an impressive organization, and they should be looked at as a model for other LCOs out there and other aspiring LCOs out there. Being responsible for the land of microcrags around the greater Bay Area has really made a major impact on the climbing resources around there and on the community in the area, for the better, of course. We discussed how working in the land of microcrags presents opportunities to steward a variety of unique climbing areas and also work with a wide variety of land managers, which of course can have its challenges since each one of those land managers may want to manage climbing differently, so they have to pay clay pay close attention to that while while working with them and, and managing these areas. We get into how the BACC is so incredibly active in their community, hosting numerous events throughout each year. I think I counted at least a dozen from 2019, maybe closer to 15 or 20 in 2019. And they are ready to jump back into it after having to put these things on hold for the last year or so. They're really excited to start hosting some events again here soon. And these events include Adopt-A-Crags, Gym-To-Crags, which we discuss at 
quite a bit of length towards the end of our conversation. Film screenings, movie premieres, you name it. If they see an opportunity to get the community together, they will jump on it. They have done such a remarkable job engaging the, with the community to the point where they have to turn people away almost at events because too many people show up. <laughs> what a good problem to have, right? The BACC is progressive. They're putting their best foot forward to engage with a diverse population of people and making sure that there is space for everyone at their events and at the crag. Peter's humble demeanor and warm nature made this for a really enjoyable conversation. It was really great talking with him. Just listen to the episode and you'll see what I'm talking about. Like, how can you not love this guy? <laughs> so allow me to introduce you to the Bay Area Climbers Coalition president, Peter Monks. Enjoy. Well, thanks so much for taking the time this morning to, to chat with me for a little bit. Uh, this kind of came in last minute, so I'm really glad that uh, you had some free time to, to chat about the Bay Area, Bay Area Climbers Coalition. No, thank you for inviting us. I mean, we love doing these kinds of events and, you know, letting people, yourself and your audience know, you know, what we're up to and what we do. Yeah, absolutely. So are you currently based in San Francisco? I am. I've actually been here just on, well, almost 20 years. And um, originally what was going to be like a one or two year, you know, working holiday kind of thing in the US became a 20 year, hey, this place is awesome. California totally, totally rocks. So um yeah, I've been here pretty much the entire time and, and uh, you know, traveled all, all over, the, particularly the Western US, but uh, California and San Francisco in particular is home. Nice. That's awesome. And uh, I wanted to hear a little bit more about your climbing history. I like to ask these, uh, ask these kind of questions to kick things off with, with all my guests and love to, love to hear how you got into climbing, when it became an important part of your life and, yeah, what your climbing history looks like a bit. Yeah, sure. So um, I should clarify, this is going to sound like a lot, but I'm actually a very mediocre climber. I've never aspired to greatness. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've never climbed that hard. I've never climbed, done anything, you know, particularly notable, but uh, obviously I enjoy it. So I think I first got the spark for rock sports in the early 1980s. My dad actually got into caving of all things, and I'm going to embarrass myself in front of this audience by admitting this. But for most of the 80s, he dragged me and my brother out um, all over southeastern Australia and actually Western Australia as well, um, caving. And so pretty quickly, and it was all the adventure, you know, go out and find a hole in the ground and explore it type of caving. And pretty quickly, we realized we needed rope, ropes and, you know, gear to be able to get in and out of these things safely. So he had um, he actually spent some time in the Antarctic and had a bunch of crevasse training, uh, crevasse rescue training back in the 60s. And kind of applied that state of the art, which was already not really state of the art by the 80s, but um, bought some gear, kind of read some product catalogs, and we just went out and figured it out. So we did a lot of the single rope stuff, rappelling and jumaring and, you know, hauling gear in, up and down ropes, that kind of thing. And then I kind of took a break. You know, I went to university and, uh, you know, moved out of home and didn't do any of that anymore. And then actually at my first job, there was a guy who had, He'd been, he was an Australian, but he, he attended college at Berkeley for a while and actually spent six months dirtbagging in the valley. And he was one of our, my work colleagues. And he said, oh, I'm going to get you all climbing. So he went to a climbing gym in Adelaide of all places. And this was probably late 95. So gyms were really new at that time in Australia. That was, yep. you know, they were brand spanking. Sorry, you want to jump in? Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, that sounds like probably one of the first gyms maybe in Australia or, yeah, first few. 
Yeah, certainly in the first couple, and I'd never even knew these things existed, but um, he had, um, I think he knew of, uh, I think it was called City Rock in the East Bay. It's now known as Berkeley Ironworks, but it was one of the first gyms in the Bay Area. So he he had somehow figured out that gyms were a thing um, and took all of us work, you know, bumblies to this gym. And <laughs> I, was, I was totally hooked. And I don't know if the caving factored into it or not, who knows, but it's a nice kind of story. And I like embarrassing myself by saying I'm a rappeller first and a climber second. Um, but yeah, he took us climbing and then he, a few of us really got into it. Um, my brother and, and some of our college friends as well, uni, uni friends as well. And he kind of took us under his wing and did a little bit of like a, almost like an apprenticeship type deal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we climbed in the, there was, there were a couple of gyms in Sydney at that point, I think two or three. And so for most of 96, we were just gym bunnies. And then this buddy took, started taking us outdoors and until basically between late 96 and 2002, you know, I was still pretty young, you know, the, the world's royster sort of thing, plenty of spare time, a little bit of cash because I was actually working. And um, yeah, we climbed all over basically Southeast Australia, we visited his, um, Mount Arapiles, Grampians, the Warren Bungles, Point Perpendicular. But really home was the Blue Mountains, which is this large sandstone range, yep. like right next to Sydney. And it's an amazing area to learn to climb. Um so I sort of still consider Blue Mountains kind of my spiritual home. And then in 2002, I moved to San Francisco. Um, my wife had finished a PhD and was looking for some postdoc positions. So we moved here. And 2002, 2003, I just went nuts on granite because Australia doesn't have a whole lot of granite. And a lot of it is really, really ancient granite. It's really worn down. So you don't get it's lot, lots of rounded blobs. You don't get a lot of clean cracks or, you know, let alone you know, cool knobs and things like you get in Ptolemy. So anyway, I was having a blast sure. exploring the granite at Sierra Nevada and Pinnacle, you know, Pinnacles and Red Rocks, places like that. Um, by about 2004, I'd actually started losing interest a little bit. And I don't, at the time, I didn't quite know what was going on, but I think some of it actually related to crowding and the associated problems of crowding. So I'd never seen, I'd never seen a queue at a climb before until I went to Yosemite for the first time and you know, found myself at 6am queuing up at the base of Royal Arches or Central Pillar of Frenzy or something like that. And yeah. like in Australia, you'd have classic crags to yourself half the time. You'd be the only people there and there's just no one else around, no dogs, no music, no people who don't know what they're doing, wondering if you're going to have to help carry them out later in the day. <laughs> and I really felt that. So um, two things happened at once in 2004. The first is we had our first kid. And the second was this kind of growing uneasiness with crowding. And so in 2004, I actually gave up climbing pretty much. Um, had kids, raised a family. Little kids take a lot of time, a lot of energy. So I was sort of not into it. Um, and then by about 2008, I was like, you know what? I need to get back into this or I'm just going to become a slob. And I was already pretty <laughs> much a slob. So 2008, I got back into it. Um, my partners who I had climbed with here had all left either elsewhere in the country or had moved on from climbing or whatever. So I actually really got into bouldering. So I'm kind of a mature age boulderer in a way. Um, and as part of that, and I think it's the kids aspect, I really started noticing even more the idea of climbers not having no impact on the land and on the crags that we climb at. And so I started as part of that bouldering, I was going to this local bouldering area here in San Francisco because I didn't really have time to go out to the Sierra anymore. And I just started doing some kind of informal stewardship there, picking up trash mostly. So I'd just go in there and if I saw trash, I'd throw it in a bag and carry it out at the end of a session. Um, 
And then in 2014, so about six years further on, that I heard, started hearing about this new BACC thing. And I'm like, I wonder what that is. Wonder if it's legit. You know, I was sort of becoming a grumpy old man a little bit about like particularly regarding just trash always piling up at the local crag. Um, so I went to some volunteer events and I really liked what I'd seen. Matt Ullery and the original crew of BACC guys re- had really, they set a really good example. And so I really, I, I wanted to be involved. And so I volunteered where, as much as I could at the events that they were running then. And then in 2016, they put out a call for um, volunteers to join the board and I applied to be the San Francisco steward and managed to get that role. So nice. That kind of leads us to today. So, um, yeah, that that's my kind of potted climbing and BACC history. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think when you said, you know, you, you started off rappelling, I've heard that story before from other climbers. I don't think it's too uncommon. You know, they folks get a rope, they find a cliff, and they're like, you know, let's go down, and then maybe they discover climbing afterwards. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've heard that before, so you're not alone there <laughs> and kind of going down than rather going up to start with. Yeah, what's really funny, of course, is that now repelling scares the crap out of me. But back then, it was like the thing to do. And I look back and I'm like, yeah, we were really pretty sketchy back in the caving days. We really didn't know what we were doing. Oh, man. Yeah, that's another common story. Uh, Yeah, some of the things I did before I really knew what climbing was, just romping up these vertical cliffs and hiking shoes. It's like, I'm so surprised all my limbs are still intact. Exactly. I know I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And then, you know, I've had some folks on the show before that are, you know, multi-generational climbers, been around for decades. But just some of the, some of the things that you just said really stood out to me. I mean, going to one of the first gyms in Australia in like in in the mid nineties and feeling overcrowded at the at the crag in Yosemite in two thousand four. And we're talking fifteen plus years ago and we're talking about how crowded it is now. Like what yeah. uh, what what a difference 2004 to 2021 is can you embellish on that at all and what's your opinion about overcrowding these days i mean it's a really tough problem and i i, I don't pretend to be a genius and have all the kind of answers any kind of i don't know that a silver bullet or a magic bullet exists for this problem um every climber has an equal right i think in just my opinion to access our yeah. these outdoor areas yep. particularly particularly places like Yosemite, which are like a spiritual home as well as an amazing physical place to climb. You know, it's right. it's got these other elements that I think all climbers should be able to experience. But, um, you know, the recent permitting announcement or pilot program on big walls, and I'm not an aid climber, so I don't really, this doesn't really affect me personally, but I'm sort of, I can see why that may and I'm going to get hated on for saying this, but I sort of see why that could be a good idea. Um, I mean, for myself personally, I pretty much haven't, I mean, I've climbed in the valley a couple of times since I got back into climbing in 2008, but in general, I avoid it. I just don't go there anymore because of the crowds and kind of the circus atmosphere of the place. Um, So, and that's a shame because the climb, there's still a lot of climbs I'd love to do there and, probably I'm decreasingly capable of doing them. So it's, you know, it's, it's um, the clock's ticking, but, but I, I, I enjoy climbing for the solitude partly and, you know, for getting away from the built environment and, Mm -hmm. you know, our crags are decreasingly able to offer that. I mean, some of it, you know, the U S is so much bigger than Australia was. So I don't want to kind of paint Australia as being this uniquely great place. It's, it just has the benefits of, 
only having one tenth the population. Um, yeah, we just we we kind of have to. I think as a climbing community, we have to we do have to think thoughtfully about restricting our own activities and what we're willing to do to make sure that we preserve the very experience that we're all seeking. Um, and things like permit systems are probably a somewhat okay approach to doing that. They're not perfect, but sure, nothing is right. Nothing is exactly, and it's going to come with compromise. Yeah. I think that's what we yeah. always have to recognize: is compromise and I mean, I, I've said it before on the show, and I love seeing new. We'll get into this a little bit, but I love seeing new climbers join the sport. It makes me very happy that people can get the same amount of satisfaction I get out of it. But that is two more feet on the ground, two more hands on the rock, making more impact. I mean, we get in our own way, but um, that's what we're here to to discuss on the show for the Access Fund to work on and how we could do this sustainably and equitably and 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 everything, trying to move forward. Yeah, but it's also two more pairs of hands. It's two. It's a pair of hands, two more hands, and a brain and eyes that can help you know work to mitigate those impacts of the new two feet. Exactly. So it's it's a double edged sword, but it's it's got some good sides too. I don't want to be all doom and gloom. Oh, for sure. Yeah, with every climber that joins the sport, that is a potential steward that joins the sport as well. That's the way I yeah. like to look at it. Um, exactly. So we we uh, before we started recording, you talked about kind of your your upbringing of sorts with the BACC uh, was on the, on the stewardship team and whatnot, and then joining the board. Tell us about tell us about your position as president uh, of BACC. How long have you been in this position for? Uh, let me see. So I started in January. Um, our prior president had been in the position for, I think, two, two and a half years, which is a pretty typical um, stint with the BACC. Just historically, that's been about the, the amount of time most presidents have put in. Um, and she did it. She was amazing. She was such an inspiration or is such an inspiration. Um, and Maura, if you're listening to this, you know, kudos to you for, you know, leading us through most of 2020, which was a really tough year for for, for all of us in so many ways, um, uh, she, she so she had stepped down from her position. I had previously the prior year stepped up from being a steward to being vice president. And the way that the BACC has just historically structured things um, and the Access Fund has actually been helpful in us framing this thinking. And I can talk a little bit about that if you want. But yeah, um, the. The idea is the vice president is the vice president and the president are both generally selected from within the pool of existing volunteers with the BACC. So you would never, we would never recruit, we would generally never recruit anybody into either of those roles fresh off the street. Um, we'd rather that people come in at the lower levels, see how the organization operates, learn kind of some of the stewardship or community ambassador or communications or any of the, one of the other roles we have get to know the organization and then move up. Um, and so that's what had happened with me is I'd been a steward for, let's see, 2017 to 2019, so three years, and then moved up to vice president just because I kind of knew the organization, I knew the mission and, you know, how we operated. Um, and that was very explicitly done with the with the understanding that as Mora looked to step away, I would be stepping up. And so... Um, so yeah, I've been in the role since January. Um, my basic role is to, and this is very much me parroting something that Maura said a lot of, which is the president's job is really just to feed the stoke of the other volunteers. 
the position exists to grease wheels and help remove obstacles and provide resources for the other volunteers in the organization who are doing the actual kind of hands on the ground work. So the stewards, yeah. And the feed the stoke mantra was just really compelling to me. And I, I've really tried to live up to that idea. Um, and I also think more generally, I've actually worked in nonprofits professionally as well. And, uh, you know, I've been involved in school boards and things like that. And I think that these volunteer led organizations do much better when they do cater to the desires of the individual volunteers. If an individual volunteer is really stoked on some esoteric thing, someone like me in the president role should be looking at a way to make them able to do as much of that as possible because there's mm -hmm. no, obviously none of us paid, there's no other um, motivation or incentives beyond personal satisfaction. And I think that's really important to, to keep in mind. Yeah, that's very powerful, and that'll keep people uh, keep people around. This uh, yeah. strong strong uh, retainment, right? Um, I think that's really cool that you guys uh, kind of hire, so to speak. I know it's not a paid thing, but uh, for the lack of a better word, hire from within internally, and just having that opportunity for growth from the from the yeah. get go. If you're a volunteer, a community ambassador, there could be potential for you to grow up in the ranks and become president of the organization someday. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And lots of lateral movement too. We've had stewards, be stewards become community ambassadors and vice versa. We've had um, one, one gentleman, uh, Charles, who's part of the organization was a community ambassador and then our secretary and now he's a community ambassador again. So, you know, I'm, again, it's all about fueling the stoke. If someone's not feeling it, then I don't want to lock them into a position that they're not interested yeah. in doing. I'd rather find out, Hey, what are you really interested in? Let's do more of that. Awesome. Great. That's great leadership, great management. Kudos to you guys. And I, th I think the opportunity is here to do such things like that because the BACC team is huge. <laughs> I was, I got on the website and I got to the about page or the staff page, whatever it was. And I was, you know, I saw you at the top and I scrolled down, scrolled down some more, scrolled down some more. And the page like kept on going. I was like, wow, there's a lot of people on this team. It was, it was amazing. How do you, how do you manage that many people on the team and volunteers and recruit those board, uh, recruit those board members? Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't necessarily have a great answer, but um, so we are about, I think right now we're around 20 and historically we've been about as high as 30. So we've, wow. that's, that's, you know, people who we consider to be board members. That's the phrase we use. Um, so kind of full-time volunteers, that doesn't make sense, but, you know, full-time volunteers <laughs> with the BACC versus community volunteers who join us for events, which is a different, we think of those people a little differently. Sure. Um, but we are really lucky. And I think as an LCO, we're somewhat unique. I mean, there are other LCOs in big urban populated centers, but we, we're lucky to be in, a, in an area that has 8 million people. Oh and my gosh. <laughs> of those 8 million, you know, X percent are climbers. And that number is actually a pretty big absolute number. So we have a really big community that we can tap into. Mm -hmm. um, on the vol purely volunteer side, so for Dr. Craggs, we've generally never had a problem getting numbers. In fact, our bigger problem is that the land managers usually restrict us. Like they have ratios, staff to volunteer ratios that they have to follow. And we have to cut people off, which sucks. But, you know, bureaucracies <laughs> are what bureaucracies have. are. Yeah, it's a good problem to have. Um, and so that kind of feeds through to the recruiting side. Often, you know, people feel like they haven't done a, as much 
BACC stuff as they would have liked because we've had to cut them off perhaps. Um, so when we put calls out for new recruits, new candidates for positions on the board, generally, generally we get lots of interest. Um, COVID really had me nervous about this, to be honest, because we do a new, we generally do recruiting every November, October, November timeframe to bring people on in the new year. And we delayed that last year because of COVID and we just, you know, everyone was, I feel like November was a little bit of a down in the dumps period for everyone. And we just didn't, didn't feel like the right time. Um, so we waited until January, February to do our recruiting this time around. And I was really nervous that COVID will have crushed, you know, crushed people's interest, motivation, everyone's sick of being on screens and not being able to go to their favorite crag and blah, 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 you know, road trips, flights, it's all really hard. Surprisingly, much to my surprise, we've actually had more candidates and applicants than we had roles for, which is an amazing problem to have. Mm-hmm. And and on top of that, typically in prior years before COVID, we would leverage things like word of mouth and looking at our volunteer events, particularly Dr. Craig's, and saying, hey, this person shows up more than once. Let's ask them at the next event where we see them or let's email them and find out if they're actually interested in becoming part of the board. So repeat visitation to our adopter crags was a real indicator of that person's probably would be interested in, A, they've already kind of qualified for being on the board. Let's see if they're interested. We've had none of that because we haven't done any public events since late 2019. And that was a bit different this year is we had to do pretty much a cold outreach with emails and social blasts and all that stuff. And like I say, we got more, much more interest than I was expecting. And maybe I'm just an old kind of pessimistic person, but um, <laughs> that was, that was super exciting. And I'm, I'm so glad that that that's happened. So we actually have, we looks like we may be create, we definitely created some new stewardship roles and we may even create new regions within our stewardship kind of geographical map um, wow. to give people place, give people territory. Um, and, uh, you know, we even created some specialist community ambassador roles that, you know, people seem to be interested in. So that's all, I mean, it's, like I say, I was really pleasantly shocked. Yeah. Well, I think that really speaks to the organization's, uh, values and people value what you do and people want to be a part of it. Thanks. Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to take credit for really any of it because I've only been president for, like I say, four or five months. Um, it's really the a the structures and patterns that Matt Ullery and the original team put in place, and then the really careful. Um, I'm going to use a word that's got a double meaning, but very careful organizational stewardship by the presidents who came before me. They were all very careful about preserving that those core values, and that's certainly a priority for me as I kind of steer the organization for the next year or a couple of years. Yeah, of course. Well, I recently heard the Bay Area be described as the land of micro crags. And I imagine that this can come with a lot of challenges, but opportunities, of course, having diverse climbing opportunities, working with different land managers, which I guess could be a good or bad thing, and working on varying stewardship issues and so on. I don't know the climbing around San Francisco all that much. I was at the 2018 access fund annual conference that was held in oakland mm-hmm. that year i believe that was oh, all right yeah i was there yeah. too yeah yeah i'm sure we brushed shoulders um but i can't remember where that stewardship day and that second day was taking place but i couldn't catch a ride out there so i didn't end up making it but um i know there's stuff just like right in the city and and uh, i feel like california has that like san francisco uh 
Los Angeles got like Stony Point. Um, yeah, I don't know if San, I don't know if San Diego does, but yeah, it's like these urban climbing areas. It's it's very accessible, which of course again opportunities challenges. Um, what are the climbing areas that are included in the Bay Area and kind of fall under the responsibility and jurisdiction of the BACC? Yeah, so the I'll, I'll list the area first because the crags are probably mostly not going to be known to most of your listeners, I would imagine, because as you say, they are generally small urban areas. But basically mm-hmm. what we do is we draw a map that is the nine Bay Area counties, which is actually a California kind of local government area, if you will. It's a, There's a formal definition of it. Um, so we do the nine Bay Area counties plus Santa Cruz County, which is actually not considered in this formal framework, a Bay Area County, but because of the, where the boundaries of Santa Cruz County come to, um, Castle Rock State Park and Sanborn Skyline County Park, which people will know as Indian Rock and Castle Rock, they're actually, there's a county border right in the middle of that climbing area, even though the parking lot, you park in the same place for both. So as an example, we've extended out to Santa Cruz because it makes sense more from a climbing geography perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of crags, um, we divide that region up into basically South Bay, which is the Santa Cruz Mountains primarily. Um, there's some other smaller crags, Guadalupe Rock and a few other bits and pieces um, in there. But for the most part, it's the, the famous sandstone area, Fontainebleau-esque sandstone areas along Skyline Boulevard in the, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, the East Bay, which has famous crags like the other Indian Rock. It's very confusing. We have multiple Indian Rocks. So there is Indian Rock in Berkeley, which is famous as being the original gym before gyms existed, where belay te- dynamic belay techniques were developed by the Cragmont Club back in the 40s and 50s, et cetera, et cetera. There's these little volcanic rhyolite plugs that have been climbed on for eternity and famous people have done famous things there. Um there's a scattering of those, probably half a dozen or so um, little volcanic crags all scattered through there. There's the North Bay, which encompasses Marin, Napa, Sonoma, Solano counties. And that's a really big region. Those counties start getting very physically big. And some of them, like the northern Sonoma coast, is really pretty remote. Um, we have done some events up that far, but I'll talk in a little bit um, in a minute, I guess, about LCOs and how we work with our sister neighbouring LCOs. particularly in those sorts of areas. And then we have a little micro area, which is um, a couple of little micro areas. There's San Francisco and the peninsula, which is the, the, if you look on the map, the the peninsula, basically San Mateo and San Francisco counties are on a spit of land that's generally about 10 miles wide and maybe 40 miles long. It's a little kind of projection on the western side of the bay so that's one region and it's got just a couple of little crags in it none of them particularly famous um, variety of rock types etc mostly in urban parks Uh, we do mount diablo as a separate uh, stewardship region which is in the far east bay over in uh, i think it's in contra costa county for this coming year, we're actually considering, well, I'm sorry, there's another smaller one, which is Stinson Beach. And I'll talk a little bit about that. That's fairly famous for having um, climbs like the Endless Bummer, which is a feature, this huge prow of rock. I think it only has two roots on it. And they're like a 13D and a 14A, but super photogenic. You know, it's right perched up high on the hillside above the crashing waves. And you can see the 
the Golden Gate and Montara Mountain off to the south and like beautifully photogenic. Um, that's a, we treat that as a micro region because of the land manager there. That's actually national park land. And we've developed a relationship with national parks in that region that lets us do stewardship events basically whenever we want. We just have to let them know that we're going to be there and we go in and do things. So we created a dedicated steward for that. Um, and we may carve out a new southeast region, which is south of the East Bay and east of the South Bay regions. We've never done anything down there. And it's a huge region that's fairly remote. It's not super urban. The Sonol Regional Wilderness is the bulk of that land. But it turns out, I didn't know this, but there is some climbing in there. And um, we have a steward who's joined us who's reasonably close. And so for geographical reasons, it makes sense to have someone maybe take that over. Wow. Whew. Yeah, you got a lot yeah. on your plate. <laughs> it's a lot and it's all sort of micro crag. So it is like exactly as you described, it's 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 complex, but um, not necessarily, you know, it's not a Yosemite. We don't have anything like that or even, you know, Red River Gorge or Red Rocks or anything like that. We've just got all these little crags with little land management relationships all over the place. Yeah, yeah. I just looked up the Endless Bummer real quick. Yeah, that is incredibly photogenic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish wow. I climbed that hard so I could get on it. I mean, I may just ate it one day or something. Well, maybe not. That's Heck not yeah. the thing. But I, I might just rappel in and clip into one of the bolts or something, get a photo on it. Exactly, yeah, yeah, pose for a photo <laughs> somehow. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you just mentioned uh, land management relationships. I wanted to ask real quick. I mean, you got a, a variety of land managers, right? You mentioned the Park Service. Uh, there's state parks, I believe, like uh, cities. Uh -huh city governments and stuff like you're working with a lot of different entities here that are going to manage their resources a lot differently how does that work for you guys how's that yeah how's that all work out yeah i think it's actually the, probably one of the uniquely complex parts of the bacc as an lco i mean some other big cities possibly have similar issues maybe boulder a boulder lco or a los angeles lco might have similar challenges but we have to deal with so many different land managers and it's the full spectrum from private property, you know, that is allows climbing right through to, in, in the case of Stinson National Parks and everything in between. So we have city park services in San Francisco. There's a little bouldering area called Glen Canyon. That's a city park run by San Francisco Recreation and Parks Department or managed, I should say. We have county parks, particularly in the South Bay, Sanborn Skyline is a great example of a county park. And then state parks, Cal State Parks, for Castle Rock, um, parts of Mount Tamalpais in the North Bay. Um, but it's really the full gamut. And on top of that, because of the history, the long history of kind of Western settlement here, there's all these crazy, like Mount Tamalpais, certain areas there have not one, but three or four land managers who all have some level of like management responsibility and ownership of a single piece of land. Wow. So just figuring that out can be really hard. And then on top of that, figuring out who we need to talk to and build a relationship with. So the North Bay is especially complex in that regard, but you know, they're all complex. East Bay has lots of little pocket parks with different bureaucracies and same thing in the South Bay. The only ones, the big ones we don't deal with, and I know a lot of LCAs, LCOs sorry, do, is BLM, the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service. We really don't have any land in the Bay that is managed federally unless it's national park. Right. So those are ones that 
we generally, we don't have any relationship with them at this point and I don't think we will because I don't know of any climbing on land, on the minimal lands that they probably have here. Yeah, I was going to say, but you would have to be expanding out of those nine, ten counties getting further and further away from the bay to do that, which is just kind of, yeah. doesn't make sense for the Bay Area Climbers Coalition, right? Yeah, yeah. And we've got sister LCOs neighboring us on all sides and we really don't, this is not a power grab. This is about, you know, collaboration. So we would, wouldn't look to expand. Exactly. Great point. So to add another level of complexity here, since all these areas are pretty urban, are there other competing uses at these parks? I mean, imagine, you know, they're not just for climbing, of course. So uh, hikers, bikers, dog walkers, whoever, um, how do you fit in in that hierarchy of sorts with the land managers climbing priority to these land managers in these areas? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, obviously with, with, with California's famously wonderful climate and 8 million people living within, you know, 20 miles of all of these places, pressures on these lands are massive and pretty Mm -hmm. much anything you can imagine humans doing gets done in the Bay area and gets done at a reasonable scale. Like a lot of people are doing it. Um, So so there's that and then the other thing is we don't really have any destination climbing areas in the bay yes there's some great boulder problems here and some great routes here um but no one's flying from europe or asia or you know australasia just to climb in the bay area and that's for one big reason is there's an elephant in the room called the sierra nevada everybody wants to go out there right because it's really, really, really freaking good. So we have kind of, I guess, we're a little bit less on the radar for land managers, I feel, than some other more you know, famous, what I would call destination climbing areas. Red Rocks in Vegas, you know, the Red River Gorge in the East Coast, um, the Gunks in upstate New York. These are all world famous climbing areas that people really want to go to. Right. Um, so we don't have anything like that. And we do have that two hours or three hours away in the Sierra. So people are going there. With that said, every time, just because of the sheer number of local climbers who are accessing the crags, we definitely are on the radar and on the priority list. I guess I would just say that we're generally not top of mind. Um, mountain biking, for example, was invented in Marin County in the North Bay back, I think, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And so mountain biking is often something up there that, that is a much higher priority. There's many more people who do it for starters. And B, there is that spiritual, you know, this was where this was invented kind of appeal <laughs> for people. Um, and to be fair, there's also a lot of, it seems like there's a fair bit of conflict. Mountain biking is pretty heavily restricted up there. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, climbing is not of the same order of magnitude. And um, yeah, it's, I think that's a number of factors as to why. Yeah, yeah, I guess that could be a good thing, bad thing. Uh, you're off the radar a little bit, but if you do need something from the land managers, um, yeah, it might not always be top priority. But yeah, but I think the access, you know, the access funds stewardship first model. I don't want to paraphrase what they do because it's more complex and nuanced than that. But I think their stewardship first. You know, let's get in front of a land manager and just do them the favors, and then later on we'll circle back and start making requests. It's super powerful. It has really worked well in the Bay Area where land managers are like, we didn't even know there was climbing on our land, but sure, if you want to bring 40 people in to pick weeds, pick up trash, 
please, by all means, come, welcome, yeah. join us, help us out. Like they love that. Yeah. So it's it's a super powerful approach. It's just time consuming. It takes time to build trust and establish those relationships. Big time. Absolutely. Well, you all appear to be incredibly visible and active in the community and really have seemed to crack the code on rallying people and bringing people together. And the number of events you all host in a given year, I know things have been on pause for a little bit, but the number of events that the BACC hosts in a given year is really impressive. And you probably host the most events I've seen out of any LCO anywhere. And I looked at your events page and it was like, 12, 15, 20 or something in 2019. It was a, you know, a yeah. combination of adopt crags, gym to crags and, uh, God, you know, uh, film screenings. I mean, just, uh, what, whatever beer, food. I mean, it, it, the list was exhaustive and it's amazing. Um, and you all seem to do this so organically and it was something that really jumped out at me looking through the website. Do you know if this was something that was like deliberately identified in the BACC's mission to be very, uh, people facing be very engaged in the community was that something that kind of came out organically or did that have to be something you did since there are eight million people around where you live it's a really good question i think the um motivation could only can only accurately be answered by the founding board members um mm -hmm. but what i have sensed as being as joining the look volunteering with the organization and then joining it uh sometime after that is that it has always, it, A, it's always been in the mission and that it was explicitly added to the mission. By it, I mean educational programming for the climbing yes. community. Mm -hmm. um, so I know for a fact it's always been in the mission. That's that's just is kind of historical. Um, I am speculating that the reason is that to a large degree, a, it comes again back to climber population. The Bay Area has a massive population of climbers who because of the dearth of local world-class crags don't just climb in the Bay Area. I mean, some do, but it, probably it's a minority. Many more of those climbers are road tripping out to the Sierra, to Nevada, to, you know, Colorado, to up to Squamish or you know, Smith Rock, you name it. They're moving around and having impacts in other places. And so my understanding, or at least my speculation, is that the founders uh, of BACC were keenly aware of this and wanted to make sure that not only were we stewarding our local crags, but actually kind of paying it forward so that when Bay Area climbers do leave the Bay and go out and recreate in these other places, they do so responsibly and don't kind of, you know, fly in as seagulls, shit all over everything. Sorry, pardon my language. Um, <laughs> poop okay. all over everything, <laughs> fly back out. We want to have Bay Area climbers kind of be exemplifying best practice behavior wherever they go in the world. And so education, certainly that's the BACC's current focus and has been for a while before my, my presidential role as well. Um, and I think it really dates back to the original founding is that the Bay Area just does not have that much climbing, but it has a, a lot of climbers and climbers with money and means to travel. So we need to do a job of kind of stewarding by proxy, if you will. I love that. That is, I've never really heard anyone say that. You're just, you're instilling an ethic in these local climbers. So when they leave and depart to the Sierra, to Yosemite, to Smith Rock, whatever, they're taking what they've learned from the BACC with them. 
that's just yeah. so forward thinking, I think, and just it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, you know, it's, it's also a big area. It's tough for us to provide coverage across the whole Bay. Sure. You know, 80 miles by 60 miles sort of an area. Um, but, but certainly the hope and the goal is to, you know, if we can just be, if we can tip one person in 10 to behave better, that's, that's a net win. And if we can make mm-hmm. it one in five, one in two, everybody, that would be even better again. And we can start, certainly strive towards that. Well, I read through the uh, 2019 annual report that's on the website, and one of the 2020 goals that you all outlined stood out to me that I hope we could touch on here just for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, to further increase community engagement with diverse populations that are truly representative of the local climbing community. Do you know how you all kind of came up with that goal, if that sounds familiar, and how you might have approached that? Absolutely. And again, I, I'm speaking to it, but I'm not, I don't want to take credit where credit is due elsewhere. So this is really, you know, it's Mora and it's Basil and Tim and Matt, the previous presidents really deserve the credit for a lot of this. But um, I think probably starting in, you know, 2017, 2018, there was a kind of a real, and it happened later for me, I'll be perfectly honest, because I was buried in my little stewardship world worrying about, you know, invasive plants and trash and graffiti and stuff. But I think within the organization around that time, there was a, a realization and a, a rec- a, um, like an epiphany that the word access actually has more than the one meaning we all give it. Yes. Um, and so like, certainly for myself, for the longest time, I always thought access just meant kind of legal and physical access to outdoor climbing resources, to crags, to boulders, etc. Yep. How can we make sure the climbers aren't being legally excluded from these precious resources and that we have a legal and physical way to access that resource, like an easement or, you know, whatever it happens to be purchasing land in order to create access from public lands to this climbing resource? The realisation is there are other forms of access beyond that. In particular, what does it mean to be, for example, a member of a minority community going to a crag and perhaps being mistreated by other climbers or other user groups at that crag or in that area? Is that actually a a problem of access? And I think the answer the BACC came up with, and certainly one I've embraced, is absolutely yes, that's an access issue. And it just... It just requires us to look at that word access and give it this other meaning, which means um, it's really the kind of justice, equity, diversity and inclusion definitions of access and looking at restrictions of access that aren't just physical and legal. And so what we actually did last year, and again, um, this was, I'm familiar with it because I was VP at the time, um, is that we created a role that we called a Jedi Advocate within the BACC. So we went back and forth on whether it was really a collective, whether this problem should be collectively owned, meaning it's everyone's responsibility to do better at this stuff, or whether it was better to have a single person kind of on the hook. And the conclusion we came to is both are true, but if we don't have one person pushing the organisation forward, kind of collective ownership is really not ownership at all, was how conclusion, if you will. Um, And so we did create this role, a Jedi advocate. We recruited internally one of our community ambassadors um, who we thought would be an awesome fit um, 
seemed happy to accept the role and, and indeed they did. And so they've been working on tr just trying to figure out what does this mean? How can we ensure that this broader definition of access starts to enter into everything we do? Stewardship events. If someone shows up at a stewardship event in a wheelchair, can we support them in doing some form of meaningful stewardship activities at that event? And the sad answer is we probably haven't been doing that. Um, what about um, an LGBTQ couple who wish to go climb at a local crag and get heckled by some old timers? Like what do what what is our role in helping to stop that behavior and making sure that everyone can access that outdoor resource equally fairly without that kind of, you know, facing that kind of, of restrictions on access. So we've created this role. Um, we've for, for just just I think as a as a quick win during COVID, we actually started looking at doing uh, indigenous um, uh, people's acknowledgements. So we've actually, as a first priority, and this may sound strange, but it makes sense when you realize we were all on computers and Zoom all of last year and couldn't go to crags. Um, but our Jedi Advocate has actually been working on preparing land acknowledgements to be read at all of our stewardship and community events that are at crags, just acknowledging kind of the indigenous peoples who stewarded that land before we did. And the Bay Area turns out to have a very complicated Indigenous story, and the history is a little bit murky because of the long history of Western, you know, colonization activity. So it's been quite an involved project, and um, but but we're getting there. We're chipping away at it, and certainly hope to get to other forms of kind of access. You know, this broader definition of access as well. Wow, man, you guys are just yeah, progressive, uh, just thinking outside the box, and really putting your best foot forward to address these, uh, these controversial in a way topics, these, uh, can, these topics that can be divisive, unfortunately, um, you're really yeah. putting yourself out there to make a stand and do the, and do a really good thing. It's, 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 it's just when I thought the BACC wasn't doing enough, you just throw another thing at me. Like <laughs> you guys are, you guys are killing it. Um, yeah, I, I've heard that be brought up before the multi definition of access, got to look at it under different lenses. Um, you know, the, the access funds logo is like, you know, the gate opening to access your crag or boulders. Yeah. And that's, that's very true. There is that, that, that physical definition of access. Now we get like this other more social definition of access and combining the two are, is so imperative these days. Yeah. And the gate could be a metaphor, of course. And I think that was totally. a very literal, like thinker. I'm kind of old school and I'm actually also old. So for me, like, having that realization was a little bit of an epiphany it was like, Hey, this access isn't just, you know, fighting local land managers to make sure they understand climbing is legitimate. Um, right. But, but the good thing is the Bay area is progressive that way. This is really just the BACC reflecting what our local community, both climbers and non-climbers do anyway. Sure. And so I feel like we do have some advantages as well, despite this being potentially controversial and difficult in other regions. I don't want to, downplay how difficult other LCOs would have a time of trying to do something like this in their areas. But we, we do have the benefit of having a, a, a community where this is very much the forefront of, of just existence in the Bay Area. Exactly. Yeah, very well supported. Yep. Well, we could talk about all this stuff. We could talk about educational programming for the rest of the morning and into the afternoon. <laughs> I wanted to focus in a little bit on the Jim DeCrag educational programming. Um, 
you know, we hear about Jim DeCrag programs all over the country and, you know, they've been going, they've been going on for a number of years now, but I've never really like gotten like, I think the substance of, of how these things are structured and what kind of looks like from people walking the door to the gym to when they're actually going to the crag. And I saw a great quote from Alex Honnold out of all people a few days ago. Uh, he posted on Instagram about Memphis Rocks and the great work they're doing down in Tennessee. And uh, he said that uh, something to the effect of climbing gyms are becoming a, a new global crag of sorts. It's like, yeah, I, I think that's true. I think that's very true. Yeah. So I, I'm curious in how the gym to crag uh, is structured for you all. Can you walk us through what that event, what these events might involve? Absolutely. So again, this is all pre-COVID because we haven't had the gyms here shut in March of last year and have only recently reopened with restrictions. And one of the restrictions is we can't do group gatherings. So we still, we, we literally haven't done a gym to crag in person in about 18 months. But pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID, the way it typically works, as you say, they're usually done at a climbing gym. We have done them at retail stores, you know, the REIs or or, um, you know, mountain hardware type type outlets, more focused on climbing, but that's a lot rarer. It's generally the gyms who really are promoting this. They really want this kind of programming in, in their spaces. Um, and B, they just give us an amazingly targeted audience who, you know, are exactly the people we want to talk to. Typically they're done, you know, a lot of these climbing gyms either have a weights room or a yoga room or a side room of some sort where they can, you know, like a multi-purpose room that doesn't actually have, you know, climbing walls in it. And that's mm -hmm. generally where we'll go. The problem with that, of course, is a little bit of out of sight, out of, out of mind. And although we promote these events ahead of time on social and email and the rest of that stuff, and the gyms generally do as well, um, probably... I would say at least half, if not more, of the visitors and attendees at these Jim DeCrag events are actually just organic on the night. They happen to be in the gym and get excited about whatever's going on and decide to poke their heads in and have a look. Oh, so nice. What? Yeah. So being in a back room is not great for that because we're a little bit out of sight, out of mind. And so the model that we use now is we generally set up and we do this other community event that we just call tabling. And it's literally what it sounds like. We set up a little folding table with a table, with a nice pretty tablecloth with our logo on it and a bunch of swag, stickers and T-shirts and you name it, flyers, pamphlets. We usually include some access fund stuff because they're very good about sending us, you know, whatever the latest, um, you know, news is from them. And we'll put all of that on the table as well. And then it's just open, kind of open Q&A. People could come and ask who we are. What is this? Why are you here? What do you do? How can I get involved? So what we'll do for our community gym to crag events is we'll set up a table outside in the gym at the same time. And although the tabling is there to just answer any questions that people may have, it's also really a way to direct traffic into the back room. So the idea is we have almost like a greeter at the front of the house. And then we have, you know, the restaurant waiting staff in the back of the house actually <laughs> delivering the fine meal of Jim DeCrag content that you're about to get. Um, and that works really well because what we can do with then is climbers come over in their climbing shoes and harnesses and they might be willing to take 30 minutes out from their evening routine just to come in and listen for a bit and hear what we have to say. And then they go back to their climbing. Um, so that's a really good model. And any LCOs who, are who might be listening to this, I'd really encourage you to, you know, ask for that from the gyms you're working with and then the tricky part of course particularly in smaller areas is making sure you have the staff to do it because you'll typically need four people for that to work two at the table and two back in the back room 
delivering the content or taking people's names or, you know, dealing with last minute, you know, shortages of chairs or whatever it happens to be. So it is a question of staffing and and that's that could be a challenge. But you can get away with four for a, for a good gym to crag with the two stations set up. In terms of content, we have a standard presentation now that is continually being refined. Like every time we deliver it, we go, oh, well, that, well, that bit is kind of wrong now. Let's fix it. So it's, it's a living document. But in general, it's pretty standardized now. And we generally do an annual kickoff event for new recruits every year. And as part of that kickoff event, we actually train everyone up on that presentation. We actually do a Jim DeCrag for the new BACC board members. And the intent is that anyone can pick that presentation up off our Google Drive and deliver it at a moment's notice. It shouldn't be unfamiliar. They should be able to at least talk through it, even if they're not clear on all the details, at least be able to present that slide deck. And the reason for that is because of the big geographical area, there are 20 gyms in the bay. So it's like covering all of those is a, is a lot of work. We don't ever have any one person do it. It's always done geographically. So. I'm in San Francisco. I've done a bunch of events at the local San Francisco gyms, um, at one of the rec centers one time, et cetera. We have some folks in the South Bay that will do the gyms down in Santa Clara County, for example. So mm-hmm. we all ha- we all, we're all reading from the same script when we do it, which is this shared standardized presentation. And that just helps also with quality control. We're not, you know, in time, in effort, we're not all making up an entire presentation every time. <laughs> yeah, the consistent content, yeah, across the yeah. board. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then that's typically 30 to 45 minutes, depending on questions. And then we'll just stick around afterwards and if there are any other questions. And often they get more general. They go beyond Jim DeCrag to things you've asked. Where does the BACC operate? How do you do it? How can I get involved? Hey, I hate you all because, you know, I'm anti-Bolt and I'm 100 years old and my exes don't like Bolts. Whatever the thing they want to talk about will, you know, stick around and entertain. Yeah. So uh, specifically, like in those in those presentations that you use across the board, you're going over just etiquette, how to behave, uh, leave no trace kind of stuff. Um, what's what's covered in those presentations? Yeah, very much all those things. I mean, leave no trace is very central to it. And we we pretty heavily borrow from access funds materials. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, they've got excellent materials. Yeah, and it's kind of what they're there for. And and um, we will usually try, they use a lot of like national level examples. They talk a lot about, you know, the, the erosion they use Tennessee. I think there's some, is it the, I think it's the Red River Gorge. It's had some really hideous erosion problems. Roadside crag, if I'm remembering the example yeah, from the slide. Yeah, in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Kentucky. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. not Tennessee. I got that wrong. Um, but we'll generally try to swap those out with local examples just on the assumption that it's going to appeal and be a little bit more direct for our audience. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, man, I've actually climbed an Indian rock in Berkeley. I didn't know that, you know, going to the toilet was such a problem there, for example. So... Um, yeah, trying to swap more relatable examples. Yeah, make it more relatable. That said, one of the things, and I, th- I, th- I think um, you know, I might be getting ahead a little bit here, but we actually going back to that earlier thing I mentioned about creating stewards who behave in appropriate ways beyond the bay. We definitely cover topics that are not relevant for the Bay Area crags themselves. Okay. So, for example, we have a lot of Bay Area climbers who go to Joshua Tree, particularly around um, Thanksgiving, you know, and through somewhat through the winter and early spring months just because it's 
nice down there and it's a beautiful right. place. Crypto soils is a really big deal down there and it, as it is across a lot of the interior western half of the US. So we talk about crypto soils, even though as far as I know, there are no crypto soils at any of the crags in the Bay Area. Um, so that's something that we're fairly conscious about is making sure we're not making it so Bay Area, Northern California specific that we're losing the opportunity to educate people about issues they will encounter elsewhere and need to be aware of. Yep, exactly. And, and, and then another thing, just quickly to tap on there, another thing we've been thinking about lately, and we don't have a fancy, a good term for this yet, but um, we've started talking about not so much about leave no trace, but instead moving to the idea of leave less trace. Like I say, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue very well yet. We probably need a marketing person to help us with it. But basically it's the idea that, you know, 10 years ago, it was great if you went in and just dealt with your own, you know, impacts. That's no longer good enough. We all actually need to go into these crags, into these precious places, wilderness areas, even urban areas, and actually leave them better than we found them. So yes. being conscious about dealing with other people's impacts as well as our own. And so leave no trace, I think, um, is an awesome start. Don't get me wrong. It's like 90% of the battle. But then going one step further and making it more about even leaving less trace than what there was when you first entered an area or a place. Love it. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, yeah, you have to hire another marketing person to, to the team to really <laughs> yeah. get that. Yeah. More, uh, more out there and more instilled in folks. Uh, it's a great, uh, holistic way of thinking about things. Um, yeah. cause none of us levitate to the crag, right? <laughs> no, no, no. And, and there are other people that, you know, the, the 1% of people who do not care about this stuff ruin it for all of us. And so the best thing we can do is just be grown ups and like, annoy you know frustratingly have to deal with their you know bad behavior well i know there's probably a lot of indoor facilities around the bay area and i think you've developed a partnership with a handful of them uh namely touchstone and planet granite i believe uh -huh. um could you recommend anything for an lco aspiring to work with an indoor facility and how to establish that relationship yeah um i would say just just from my experience and, and i should say again i didn't personally develop our relationships with gyms in the Bay. I've sort of, that's generally handed through kind of our, our, our communications team. We have a team that does kind of communications partnerships, that kind of thing. But in general, my observation is that it's actually quite similar to land manager relationships on the stewardship side in that gyms, the climbing gyms, are struggling with some of the same issues that land managers are, that being they have finite people, finite time, finite funds and an ever-growing list of demands from their customers and you know probably shareholders and other people like that for them to do things and so as an lco it's kind of the same approach with a net within brand new land manager is you can go in with kind of an open mind and with a series of open questions and basically make it all about how can we help you here are the things we exactly. do how can we help you with your problems? What are your problems? We're not promising we can help with all of them, but I'm sure there's something in there where we can you know, help you out. And gym to crags are an awesome entree because in my experience, all the gyms I've ever been to really want to be, I think they're, they're genuinely interested in being good climbing community citizens, good members of the community. 
and they don't want to churn out new climbers who go out into the outdoors and trash the place. But they're not necessarily equipped to address that problem directly themselves. And so an LCO can come in and say, how about we do Jim to Crags with you? Or just do it at all if you're not yet doing that sort of thing. And, I, and as I say, most gyms jump all over that offer. So gyms are wonderful partners. And I think our interests, LCO's interests and gym interests are very, very tightly aligned. And yep. I don't think that's a difficult conversation. It's an easier conversation than land managers, I would say, in many cases. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very easy way to put it. Uh, Relate it to, uh, to establishing a relationship with a land manager, asking not what can you what can you do for me, what can I do for you, and yeah. I've, I've, that's been preached on the show before. So I'm glad it's been brought up again. Uh, it's a consistent message that I've heard a lot. So very relatable, very easy to understand. So love that. Yeah. One one thing actually. So sorry, just before we move on, one thing I would say yeah. though is, particularly for younger newer LCOs, it really helps to be clear on your mission though. In particular, which lines will we not cross? So, like the BACC, just as an example, we're very explicit about not being a climbing club. We don't do climbing trips. We don't teach you how to use gear. We don't teach you how to climb or jam or use any of the other fa like fancy climbing techniques. We don't do any of that. We don't don't. We're just that's not within our wheelhouse. And so the thing to be aware of and stewardship with land managers is a little bit the same is you just have to be very crisp about knowing which things you won't do. And when a gym brings up, hey, can you do a self-rescue class? Well, the BACC in that example would say, sorry, we'd love to, you know, but maybe we can introduce you to someone who does do that, but we don't do it. Like, it's just good to be clear and it, you don't need to be kind of rough or crude or, or you know, oh, you know, definitely not. We don't do that. Like it doesn't need to be a big deal, but um, it helps to go into the conversation having already thought that through because if you're in the heat of the moment and the gym owner brings something up, it can be easy to kind of fall in the trap of saying, yeah, yeah, we'll do that, we'll do that. And then later on realise, wait a minute, we don't actually have the skills or the, or the scope to do it. Exactly. It's out of the scope, uh, mission creep, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's you're not you're not the only one out there that could that could provide those things. Um, there are professional guiding services that could provide something like that. So you just got to stick yeah. to your advocacy, your stewardship, your community engagement, and and not deviate too far from what your mission is. Exactly. Yeah. What kind of folks are typically showing up for these events? Is there a particular like, age group or demographic that come to the gym to cracks? I think it really just tracks your regular gym goers, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. And what I would say as an old grumpy calcified person is that it's generally young people. <laughs> it's people who are in their, you know, teens, it's kids, um, climbing team kids, for example. It's lots of 20-somethings. That seems to be kind of a, the central part of the bell curve. And then occasionally you get crusty old timers like me who come in and grumble about everything, <laughs> um, which is always fun. Um, so no, I think it's just really representative of the, the climbing community in general. Um, yeah, I, 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 it, and it can vary. You know, sometimes if we do an event, we don't don't usually do gym to crags at competitions, for example, mm -hmm. but we table them. And I've noticed that the competitions attract a younger crowd. Often it skews more to kind of like early 20s, late teens. Like you get the yeah. young hotshots coming out of the woodwork, the ones who train in basements 90 hours a week. Um, 
So there is a little bit of skew there, but for gym to crack specifically, it's really just because it's a regular gym night. Generally, it's it's just whoever's at the gym that night, and that's just the yeah. climbing gym climbing population. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Well, this is, my next question is maybe a little nebulous, but I think it relates back to a little bit to what you said about leave less trace instead of leave no trace. I'm I'm trying to delineate something a little bit here, so bear with me. Uh, I discussed this question with uh, Access Fund Stewardship Director Ty Tyler a couple of years back, and I thought he brought up a fair point, and I wanted to run this by you. Do you think there's a place for varied programming, whether you're a route climber or a boulderer for Jim DeCraig? Like, are there certain nuances about a Jim DeCraig program that could be addressed differently if you're a route climber or boulderer? Because we say Jim DeCraig, it's not necessarily Jim to Boulder. I don't know. I, I, I've thought about this a little bit, and I don't have a perfect answer for it. As I said, it's kind of nebulous. But does that does that make sense? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I'll go with whatever Ty said because he's the guru of this stuff. But just <laughs> jokes aside, um, I mean, but seriously, though, Ty has done this a lot more than I have. Uh, yeah. In, in certainly in our materials, we actually do specialize a little bit of the content, um, mostly for bouldering. Um, Maybe taking a step back, what I'd say is that, you know, 90% of the content is the same. We talk about things like, how do you park? Where do you park? Um, you need to go to the bathroom. What is your bathroom plan for the day? Um, you've brought all this trash. You brought a bunch of food that's wrapped in single-use plastics. What are you going to do with that? How, how are you going to make sure that that's not left behind? Um, you someone's brought a dog okay who in your group is going to take responsibility for the dog and make sure the dog is well behaved and doesn't bother other climbers or other user groups so a lot of that stuff is common whether you're bouldering or roped climbing it really makes almost no difference in fact it goes beyond climbing as well other user groups have some of the same challenges right um, so we generally cover all of that material up front the one thing that i can think of we do we do have at least one slide that is bouldering specific and it has to do with pad dragging. So, you know, around the base of a bowl, you know, you're out at the Peabody's or something, um, and you want to try a problem 20 feet to the left, rather than fold your pad up and carry, you just drag it through the sagebrush and over to the other problem. Well, that's not great. <laughs> and it turns out to be a pretty bouldering specific impact. So we do talk about some of those aspects. I'm I'm actually struggling to remember if we have anything equivalent for roped climbing. I don't think we do, but I could be wrong on that. Um, but certainly there are bouldering specific impacts in particular. Um, the other interesting thing about bouldering is it actually tends to be more concentrated in a smaller area for longer periods of time than roped climbing. Often mm -hmm. roped climbers are more like in, up, through, and out. Whereas boulderers stay in the one spot all day or pretty much the one spot all day. So there are certainly land managers have, have brought to our attention that what they see is a different impact pattern between the two. Interesting. Yeah, a friend of mine just did a study uh, on vegetation impacts from climbers at the base of cliffs, and and she did like a random selection of routes at a local cliff here. And I was trying to think anecdotally if there is any more impacts between like trad routes and sport routes, um, sprawling out more gear. You know, if you if you're climbing a, a, a traditional route, you, you'll you'll have more gear to sort to out. You know, gullies. Go, yeah, exactly, totally. So mm -hmm. you know, and I go to Indian Creek a lot. So I mean, I have a giant rack of gear that I 
you know, I, I do my best to keep it consolidated, of course, but you know, there's just, you're sprawling out gear everywhere with sport climbing. You just got to wreck quick draws and you're up and down and out. Yeah. I just, I don't know, anecdotally, if there's differences between those two things respectively and, and more impacts between bouldering or route climbing as well. Yes. This is kind of some interesting things to think about. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. Like um, there's Mount Arapiles in Western Victoria back in the, you know, late 90s when I was climbing there a little bit and kind of aware of some of the stewardship issues because it's a world-class destination area, so it gets a lot of traffic, a lot of impact. One of the things that was, it's mostly a trad crag, I should also point out, but one of the things that was being discussed at that time was adding adding in lower off bolts for some of the single pitch routes because the descent gullies were getting trashed. And so yes. a lot of trad climbers were like, well, that spoils my trad experience and you know, we don't need to be adding hardware to the rock when the trad gear is just so amazingly good at this place, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I, I in hindsight now I realise, you know, that's actually, and I was very much in the, no, this is a trad experience, don't ruin my trad experience. And then you get into some horribly eroding gully full of TV-sized blocks that are all ready to tr- be trundled. And you realise, well, this isn't actually that much fun. <laughs> this isn't a great trad experience. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you, you're quite right. I can imagine there would be differences between tread and sport climbing as well as between roped climbing and bouldering. Yep, exactly. I, I, I We dealt with the same kind of issues at my local crag. It's mostly traditional climbing. There are bolted anchors on like every single route now, but they were put there to, to my knowledge because the descent gullies on the other side are just sketchy and like a stiff breeze would bl- blow these big boulders over and it's just decomposed granite you can slip out heading down so i think after a while they decided to put those top rope or not you know the, the anchors at the top of the roots to lessen that erosion on the back side i mean it makes yeah, sense maybe if Maybe a friend could go in in a couple of years and see how the gullies have changed, even do a, like a before totally. and after photos, just take a photo of one of the worst gullies now and see if it revegetates, you know, in five years. Because if so, I think you could say that experiment really worked. Those bolts really, you know, are justified. Totally. Yep. All right, Peter. Well, I don't want to keep it for too much longer. I got a couple more questions for you just to kind of wrap up this Jim DeCrag educational programming part. Um, just any recommendations for LCOs uh, out there looking to bolster their educational programming? I think the solid relationships with the gyms is kind of a, a, a no-brainer, but I'll mention it anyway, because that's going to be the bulk of where these things are done. Um, we actually have one local gym that for a while, we'll have to check post-COVID, but uh, for a little while, they actually had a gym to crag class, which we taught, well, not taught, but a gym class presentation, was mandatory before you could do their lead class. So they wouldn't let you do their lead class in the gym until you'd sat in on a gym to crack. And that was awesome. We were like, holy cow, you're creating a captive audience for us. Like, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, So that's a really good idea. And I think it wasn't ours. I think the gym just came and said, hey, what do you think about this? And we're like, hell yeah, that's great. Um, And the assumption is that lead climbers in the gym are actually going outside. Right. at some point, which is not always true, but probably to an approximation is reasonably true. But it's, I mean, I think it's an awesome idea and other LCOs should totally float that idea with their local gyms that they already have relationship with. Um, and then I think just, you know, standardizing and consolidating the content, the core principles that you stand for, and, and you know, the Access Fund is a great authority figure for that. Um, and the approach, you know, having 
in our case, having we we are very conscious about having people near each gym who can walk into the gym, you know, on a couple of days' notice and deliver that standardized content almost on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the luxury of a big community. I don't want to down like downplay the benefit that we have from that, but um, you know, other LCOs might get something from that too. Yeah. All right. What about? Uh... At the stewardship days, I mean, you're out there to clean up uh, graffiti, trash, whatnot. Is there any more educational specific things that you do while you're outside? Uh, not so much. Those days tend to be mm-hmm. pretty jam packed and we, yeah. most land managers only really want to do like a four or five hour stint. So of which you right. lose an hour at the start with all of the waiver signing and safety talks and, <laughs> sure. you know, all sign in and all that stuff. So generally not, we do table. So another standard practice that we have is that our standard tabling kit with community ambassadors will join the stewardship event. And in fact, the steward is responsible for finding a community ambassador pair up with to be their buddy for the day. And we'll table usually from an hour before the official start to, depending on the crag, if we're doing projects right at the meeting point, like right behind, like some of the really tiny urban crags, the table will just stay up all day. But at crags, which is probably more typical for other LCOs, at crags where you meet, say, in a parking lot and then walk a mile, two miles to get to the project site, we'll generally tear the table down, you know, 30 minutes or an hour after everyone's walked off, the volunteers have all walked off to the project sites. So it's not strictly education, but it gives people an opportunity while they're milling about, while they're kind of, you know, convening to ask someone questions. And it's a central funnel point for those necessary things like waivers and photo releases and, you know, anything the land manager might need us to get volunteers to do. Yeah. Okay. Right on. All right. Final question. It's a question I ask everyone at the end of the show. What is your definition of advocacy? Oh my goodness. This is a really big question. And uh, it's a semantic question too, which means I can get to invent my own contentious definition uh, and annoy the hell out of everyone and get you hopefully a lot of rage <laughs> click traffic or whatever the term is. So um, it's a it's a good one. Um, oh boy, um, I think one way of looking at it in a way that I've been thinking about recently is that advocacy is activism for grown-ups. Mm, that's a new one. I haven't heard that. Yeah, I just made it up. So it's probably garbage and someone in the comments after this five seconds after this is published will tell me such and I'll think I'm an idiot and <laughs> I'll agree with them. So anyway, we'll uh, see how it no. flies. But, yeah, but I think, it, you know, yeah. So to unpack it a little bit, activism is like easy and instant gratification kind of behaviors. You know, it's easy to go out and spend time. And I mean, easy, not in terms of time spent and effort spent, but easy in terms of like decision-making. It's easy to unilaterally go out find a crag, develop it, run a trail to the crag, and then pat yourself on the back and say, I'm an awesome person who has benefited the climbing community. Look how selfless I am. Look at the amazing work that and effort and time and money I've sunk in for the good of everybody. Like that's an easy thing to do. And again, I mean easy in the sense of, you didn't have to ask anyone for permission. You didn't have to reroute that trail when you, when it turns out you ran it through an endangered species habitat or that the crag itself 
is, you know, geologically unstable or whatever the case may be. There's any one of a number of million other variables that could come into it. And so, you know, I, I was that person. I have done that mostly in Australia before I moved here. I have put up new routes. I have scattered crags and sunk bolts. And I don't think I've ever created a trail, but certainly I've done some of those other things. And I thought I was doing, you know, everyone a world of good. I'm now like almost 30 years into my climbing career and hindsight being 2020 has kind of taught me that that doesn't have a high probability of creating like a durable, lasting, sustained benefit for the climbing community, mm, um, let, alone, let alone land managers or other user groups. And the reason is that that kind of unilateralism is really it's it's narrow sighted you can't know everything about the areas you're developing or the place you are recreating um it takes it takes a village to borrow a term um and once you start to include the village in that in your activity it suddenly gets a lot harder to just do things you have to consult you have to collaborate you have to compromise and that's all really hard much harder than walking through the forest for 3 months to find a cliff and then spend multiple months putting in bolts and cleaning cracks and all of that stuff. That's actually the easy work. And, you know, there's some recent examples of this. I think the ban in the Grampians in Australia, the recent climbing ban, which is a massive ban. We're talking, we're talking a ban that's of a national park that's like the size of Yosemite National Park and all climbing yeah. and bouldering is banned in there. It's, it's a crazy draconian ban that's happened. But it was the direct result of climbers acting unilaterally. Despite some of what's being said on social media, um, I just know that a bulk of the Australian climate community, despite being frustrated and disappointed, actually kind of understand why it's happened. And it was the action of a few, the unilateral actions of a few. Mm. Um, the bolting ban in Smith Rock from October of last year, similar case. Um, there was, we heard about from the Access Fund, some closures in Malibu Canyon in Southern California just in the last year or so that were caused by unilateral climbers going in and doing this quote unquote selfless activist work. But it turns out they're on working on a crag that has protected species on it. And so the access funders had to work to mitigate that unfortunate and accidental, but ultimately da damaging activity. Right. So in contrast, that's talking a lot of negatives about act what I would call activism. Advocacy is about building multilateral relationships based on trust. That's really what it boils down to. And once you have those multi-party, multilateral relationships that are based on trust, that's when problems can be identified and addressed, opportunities can be seized and, you know, new things created. Um, and it can all be done collaboratively and to everyone's satisfaction. It's slower, it's harder, it's way more frustrating. I'm not going to lie about that, but it's durable. That can last and that can actually be a lasting contribution to the climbing community. And so that's, you know, that's kind of why, I'm, why I got involved in the BACC and why I love this whole stewardship thing so much is having been the golden age individual hero activist guy, and having seen the the downside consequences of that writ large, um, you know, I'm now just much more, I think, humble about what individuals can do, both positive and negative, and in awe of what groups of humans who 
choose to work together can achieve. It's, it's, it's a much more profound and lasting thing. Um, I probably should have written this down because now I'm rambling, but... Um, well, I got to record it so he can listen back anytime. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can endlessly sleep and lie awake at night wondering how I could have phrased it better. Hopefully I got the so point well. across. <laughs> oh, you did. You did. No, I, I love you. You got a different spin on, on what might be just traditionally thought as advocacy, maybe. And, yeah. Um, man, it's going to be harder, hard, I think, in subsequent episodes to find a better definition of that. Like you rounded it out so well and I had to write it down fast before I forgot it. Multilateral relationships based on trust. That's durable. Like, boom, stamped, sealed, signed and stamped like. <laughs> I, I need my market. I need that that fictitious marketing person to come in and come up with a witty way of saying that, though. Oh, oh <laughs> man! Well, I love it. Any any blowback that you thought you might have gotten uh, will be canceled out from from the end right there. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Uh, like the cave, the caving background or repelling background might have hopefully just been somewhat balanced out. Yeah, yeah. Well, Peter, um, you know, you started the show saying that, you know, you haven't climbed anything super hard or, you know, you know, you went on that just a little bit. And I just want to say, like, when it comes down to it, like, not all heroes wear capes and you're one of them. The BACC is one of them. Your guys' work is just exemplary. And I've been so impressed with what you've told me today and what I've learned about the BACC. So please keep going. Thank you, thank you so much. And and if it's because I if I see far, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. This is really not not at all an individual thing. It's been a group effort. And hats off to you know the original founders of the BACC for having the foresight to create a structure that's durable and has lasted. And just on a final note, what I would say is we love getting in touch with other LCOs, not just in California, but all across the country. And in fact from elsewhere too, if such a thing exists. And so if anyone wants to just reach out, you know, please do. We love having people join our board meetings. We'll, I'll happily join others on the, on the board. We'll happily join other LCOs board meetings. We, we really love to collaborate. So please hit us up. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you begin, that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org, so check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way, and I'd greatly appreciate if you helped me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. I'll catch you all next time.